Well, maybe you've seen in search of notices in the newspaper or on social media. People often let you know that they're looking for something and they'll give a brief description of what they're searching for. Maybe they're searching for a new house or, or a job or, or a pet. But whatever they're searching of, they'll, they'll always usually include some kind of description. So if they're looking for a new place to live, they might give the price range that they're looking for, the what size of house they're searching for, maybe the approximate location. The passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning is going to be Psalm 15, if you'd like to turn there. That's page 423 in your pew Bibles. And this psalm is a sort of description. Only this one is describing something much more important than any earthly house or job or pet. Psalm 15 begins with a question. And the question is addressed to none other than God himself. And the question has to do with who can live with God. Verse 1 of Psalm 15 says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And these, these are figurative ways of, of expressing heaven, of expressing that state of existence that is in close proximity to God, in the place where his glory is revealed, which in Old Testament times was that, that tent, the tabernacle. Who will sojourn there? The holy hill of the Lord. It's a way of speaking of heaven. So really, this is asking, who's going to be in heaven? Who can be in the presence of the holy God in heaven? In order to understand the answer that the rest of Psalm 15 gives us, we have to understand this question. I'm going to read the psalm here in a second, but let's just pause on verse 1 before we, before we do that. And think about what verse 1 assumes. Verse 1 is assuming that as we are, we are not already in the presence of God. God is not already as, as close to us as he could be, um, no matter what Richard Rohr or other false teachers might claim. This question assumes a distance between God and man, a separation between us. And this is not some kind of physical distance. After all, we believe that God is everywhere. He's, he's omnipresent. And yet, though God is everywhere... There is a relational distance between fallen humanity and God, our creator. And this is because of our sin. Our sin alienates us from God. If you think back to the Garden of Eden, what did Adam and Eve do? Right after they ate the forbidden fruit, they hid from the presence of the Lord. Sin alienates us from God. This is a relational distance. And so really, 
if you want to think about the whole storyline of the scriptures, it has to do with how God and man, God and, and humanity can come back together and be in close fellowship, friendship, community with, with our creator. <clears throat> and this is the most important question that we, could, that we could consider, is how can we approach God? How can we be with him for all of eternity? Because to be with God, to be in his presence, that is where there is fullness of joy, as Psalm 16 says. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. But to be cut off from the presence of God, to be forever separated from our creator for whom we were made, that is the definition of hell. First Thessalonians describes the punishment of those who do not believe the gospel. At Christ's second coming, it says that, that they will experience eternal punishment away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Forever cut off from God, alienated and confirmed in that alienation, in that loneliness, in that despair for all of eternity. And on the, on the flip side, Jesus described eternal life in John 17, 3 as, as having everything to do with knowing God and being in close relationship with him. So who will be in close relationship with God as the friend of God, having a place in his household for all of eternity? Who will dwell with God? And Psalm 15 shows us that it's not just anyone and everyone that will dwell with God for eternity. There are qualifications to be met. And the New Testament affirms this. Revelation 21, speaking of heaven, says that nothing unclean will ever enter the holy city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Heaven is a holy place inhabited by a holy God and a holy people. So this psalm, if, if it was an in search of, we could say that it is in search of residence for heaven. What must someone be if they're to have a place in God's presence where there is unending joy and peace? And this psalm gives us the answer. So let's read Psalm 15, starting in verse 1. This is a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. The one who would dwell with God must be holy in their walk, 
in their work, in their talk. We'll examine this psalm in three ways this morning. First, we'll see that this psalm condemns us. This psalm condemns us. That'll be our first point. Secondly, we'll consider how it redirects us. Praise the Lord, Psalm 15 is not the only scriptures that we have. This psalm redirects us to the Savior. And third, we'll think about how it guides us, how it guides the believer. But the the main idea is that the one who would dwell with the holy God must be holy. The one who would dwell with the holy God must be holy. So point number one, this psalm condemns us. This is bad news for fallen humanity. It condemns us. The person described in Psalm 2 is a lover of truth. Look at verse 2. It says that this person speaks truth in their heart. They love truth. They listen to God's word, which is the truth. And every time we sin, every time we listen to temptation, we are not speaking truth in our hearts. Every time we give in to the the appeal of, of looking at what we shouldn't, of seeking what we shouldn't, of saying what we shouldn't, every time we have unholy fears and distrust God, we are believing lies in our hearts. Sin lies about God's worth, about God's goodness, about God's glory. It says that God is holding out on us, that he, you know, in God is not really found fullness of joy, and that his right hand are not pleasures forevermore, that in fact, following God is is miserable and boring. Sin and temptation says to us that what's more exciting, what's really going to give you a, a good life, is sin. Temptation tells us that, that God is not to be trusted. That if we want to be secure and safe, we better get as much money as we can. We better look out for ourselves because there is no sovereign God running the universe. Every time we listen to temptation, we are speaking lies in our hearts. We're, we're, the, the lie comes to us and we open the door and entertain it as a guest. But the one who will dwell with God speaks truth in their hearts. And because they speak truth in their hearts, truth comes out of their mouths. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus said, You know, Satan is the father of lies. And those show themselves to be his children who speak his language. But those who are the children of God are committed to comprehensive honesty, to truth-telling. They hate all falsehood, all equivocation and double meanings and white lies and deception. They prize truth and trustworthiness. Because it is so important, and God is a God who never lies, he's a God of truth, those who love God also love truth. 
verse 4, look at verse 4. It says something about this person's word. It says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So in other words, even when standing by a commitment hurts, they would rather suffer than go back on something they've committed to do. That's how important it is to them to be honest and reliable and trustworthy and a, a teller of truth. Honesty is more important to them than avoiding a loss. They'd rather take a loss than take a loss to their trustworthiness and be accused of, of falsehood. This psalm calls us to love others in, in action and with our words. Notice what verse 3 says, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. So that's just a very broad thing, right? Doing no evil to those around us. But, but it seems like it's emphasizing our words. Because while many of us would not would, would think twice to raise our hands and, and strike another person. We may not think twice about using our words to tear them down. Verse 3 says, who does not slander with his tongue. This person avoids speaking about others in a way that damages their reputation. Neither do they take up a reproach against a friend. This is, this is a little different emphasis. It's talking about taking up something. Maybe, maybe you hear something. Somebody else is speaking ill of another, and you take up that reproach and pass it on to the next. You didn't, you didn't think of it. You didn't invent it, but you're passing it on. You're passing it on. The Bible says in Proverbs 22 that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. So what, this, what Proverbs 22 is telling us that somebody's most valuable asset is their name, their good name, their reputation. It's actually of more worth to that person than even all the money in their bank accounts, than their house, than their car. And so to, to do damage to a person's reputation, to do damage to their name, is actually a greater crime against that person, according to Proverbs 22, than doing damage to their house or their car. If you wouldn't go over and burn your neighbor's house down, then you also shouldn't burn their name to the ground. If you wouldn't go and get in their car and ram it into a tree, then you should think twice about how you protect their reputation. It's a serious form of robbery to damage the reputation of another. And God condemns it in the strongest terms. Read the book of James this afternoon and see what the book of James says about the tongue. And, and as far as taking up a reproach, think about, think about this. If, what would you do if your neighbor was away from his home one evening and you saw an arsonist sneak up with a jug of gasoline and start dumping it on the house and break a window and, and start throwing flammable things inside and then, then it starts burning your neighbor's house down. 
would you stand by or, or maybe would you, would you go over and help him? I, I hope not. I hope you'd go and, and tackle the guy or call the police. I hope you would, you would stand up to defend the possessions of your neighbor. But when we take up a reproach, when we, take up, when we hear an ill report about somebody and we carelessly pass it on to another person, did you hear what so-and-so said about that person? What are we doing? We're doing something worse than helping an arsonist burn down that person's house. We may be helping to destroy their reputation. Very carelessly, we do this. But it's a very serious thing. You know, scammers have networks of people that, that work for them in order to carry out their theft. It's usually, you know, these elaborate scams, you, you get the call on the phone and they're trying to cheat you out of, their, out of your money. Usually that's not just pulled off by one person. Usually it's a team, a gang of scammers. They've got people overseas, you know, making phone calls. They've got pickup people here in the U.S. that will often go and, you know, they'll, they'll get the, the people to take their money out of the bank and, and put it in a box. They'll have pickup people and they'll pick it up off the doorstep and, and they'll, they'll have it shipped off to another person. That person will take that package and ship it off to the next. And each person gets their fair share, but each person is part of the crime. If you would not, if you would think twice before picking up a package and passing it off, you know, shipping it overseas like that, you should also think twice about taking up a report, an ill report about another person and passing it on without being very careful to investigate it to see if it's true. And also to, to ask yourself, does, do I really need to share this information with others? How should I handle this situation? The person described in this psalm does no evil to his neighbor, either in word or in deed. I want to I speak to the kids for a minute. Kids, how do you treat your brothers and sisters and your friends? How do you speak to them? How do you speak about your parents when, you're, when they're not in the room and you're just playing with your friends? Do you say bad things about your parents? Do you complain about them? Or maybe there's, maybe there's another kid and you don't really like that kid. Do you talk to your friends badly about that person? This psalm says that that's, that's a very bad thing. God does not like that. That displeases God. Listen, whenever we talk badly about others and make them look bad with our words and say mean things, even if they're not there to hear us, God is listening. And when we speak those kinds of words, we're speaking Satan's language. And that's a very serious thing. So be, kids, be careful how you speak about other people, about other kids, about your parents. Be very careful what you say. God is listening to every word. If you're tempted to say something, if, if you're about to say something bad about another person, just stop for a second and ask, would God want me to say this? And if you're not sure, go and ask your parents before you say anything else. God takes our words very, very seriously. Slander and gossip is the language of hell. 
You know, this is, this is the, one of the first things the devil did in the Garden of Eden. You know what he did? He slandered God. He tried to make Adam and Eve think that God was stingy and strict and that God was actually afraid of them, afraid that they would get some kind of special knowledge. He accused God of dishonesty. And slanderers, those whose lives are defined by this sin of the tongue, ultimately reveal their lineage by their language. They speak very much like their father, the devil. This is the speech of the dark side, the kind of speech that will never be heard in heaven. Our words can be like sword thrusts, the Proverbs say, stabbing other people's souls. People commit suicide because of things people say to them. Don't ever, don't ever say that sticks and stones break my bones, but words can never touch me. That's not in the Bible. Listen, God will judge people for their words. And so the question for all of us as we think about this psalm is have we ever spoken a word that has hurt another person? Have we ever done something that hasn't been kind to another person? Even just once. The book of James says that he that has kept the whole law but breaks it in one point is guilty of it all. We might try to justify ourselves and, and say, you know, in general, I'm a pretty nice person. But that's not good enough for God. God doesn't lower his standards for us. God is holy, and he cares that his law is kept. We might not like that. We might think, well, if I was God, I would do things differently. Maybe you would, but the fact of the matter is we're not God. And all I can do this morning is let you know that God is not going to lower his standards for you. You'll have to take that up with him on the day of judgment. But I would plead with you, God warns us very strongly that he does not lower his standards and that even if we have sinned in one point, we are lawbreakers. And the Bible's even more clear with us. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, if our words are consistently tearing others down, again, what did Jesus say? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what this shows is that we have a heart that does not love those around us. We have a heart full of hatred and, and strife and pride. Now you might think to yourself, well, I don't, I don't hate people. Like I'm, you know, I, I don't hate them. But listen, what, what did we read earlier? Philippians 2, it says, let not every person look after their own interests, but the interests of others. You know, sometimes we find ourselves putting others down, not because we, we have a special grudge against them, but because we're so focused on making ourselves look good that we're willing to squash others in the process with our words, to put them down in order to make ourselves look better. And that is still a lack of love. And the Bible says in 1 John 4 that if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. As uh, I think it was Thomas Boston, he said, no one loves God who will not love others for God's sake. What about verse 4? Here we see that this person is one who sees people as God sees them. He sees them in light of God's standards. So don't, don't be thrown off by this. It says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. That doesn't mean that they are just, just boiling with hate towards people who, who are you know, especially bad or you know, who, who don't love God. What, what this means is that you're not buddying up to people, that you're not admiring them for worldly reasons. You know, they, they might have a very immoral character, but, oh, they're famous. Oh, they're rich. Oh, they're popular. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to like, get in their, their good circle. What does the second half of the verse say? But honors those, verse 4, but honors those who fear the Lord. So what this means is that you'd be more excited to spend your afternoon with, with an old widow lady hearing about God's faithfulness in her life than, than getting to have lunch with Miley Cyrus or Snoop Dogg or, or fill in the blank, whatever, whatever person, whatever celebrity that our world admires. Now, we should, we should care about these people. We should have compassion on them. We should desire that they repent and turn from their sin. But we shouldn't admire them. We should recognize that that as they are, they're displeasing to God, just, just as we would be apart from God's grace. And we should love and, and look up to those who may not be rich or popular or famous, but who love God. We should honor those people. Verse 5 teaches us our, their attitude towards money. They're not lovers of money. They don't lend out their money at interest. Now, the Old Testament, it didn't forbid lending money at interest in every circumstance. The people of Israel were forbidden for lending at interest to their brothers and to the poor. They were allowed to lend at interest to foreigners, such as you might might think of traveling businessmen. So it's not just a a flat denial of, of charging interest. But... In most cases, this practice was forbidden. Because in most cases, when somebody would would be taking out a loan in this agrarian society, this agricultural society, it's because they were in a really tight spot and they desperately needed help. And what God's law commanded was that they they love their brother, they love their neighbor as themselves, they treat them as, as they would want to be treated. And they don't use their difficult life circumstance as an opportunity to get rich that they find it more blessed to give than to receive. And so they focus on helping that person out of that tight spot than just using it as an opportunity to take advantage of them for their own interests. Also, we see that they, this person does not take a bribe against the innocent. So they, they care more to, to see justice done than to pervert justice because, oh, maybe... Maybe this person could kind of pay me back. Maybe they could help me out later. So, you know, I, I, I want to help them get out of this, you know, help them get away with whatever sin they've done. 
No, this person cares about that, that justice is done. God hates greed. And this person cares more about honoring God than getting a little bit more money in their, in their pocketbook. So friends, I hope you feel the weight of this. I hope you see that all of us fall short, even from just this one psalm. We have all failed. We are sinners. And this psalm condemns us. And if this were the only scriptures in the Bible, all of us, all of us, without exception, would have no hope because we've all failed and fallen short of the glory of God. But I want us to see, secondly, that this psalm redirects us. Praise the Lord. This psalm strips us of all self-righteousness in order to point us to the only one who is truly righteous, and that is Jesus Christ. There was one who walked blamelessly and did what is right and spoke the truth in his heart and did no evil to his neighbor, who never slandered, who always did what was right, who swore to his own hurt and did not change. And that one was Jesus Christ. So this psalm is, is speaking of Jesus, really. It's, it's prophetic in this way. Who is the one who will dwell in the presence of the Lord? The only, the only one who has that right is Jesus Christ. He is he's the only one who is truly perfect. But the good news of the gospel is not that Jesus came down to earth and that Jesus, that, that God the Son took on human flesh in order to live a perfect life to just kind of show us how bad we were and just leave us. He didn't, he didn't take on flesh and enter into our world just to be an example for us in order to say, hey, here's what you guys should be doing. Try harder. I'm going back up to heaven. No. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to bring forgiveness to those that this psalm condemns, people like you and me. The reason Jesus died on the cross was because he was paying a penalty. The just was dying for the unjust. The blameless one was dying for the blameworthy. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And for those who trust in Christ, that fountain filled with blood cleanses all their guilty stains. For those who trust in Christ, they receive the gift of his righteousness. And it gets put to our bankrupt accounts. We, as 1 Corinthians 1 says, he has become to us who believe wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Just as the prophets prophesied that the, the Lord himself would be our righteousness. So you, you want to be in the presence of God? Put on the perfect robe of righteousness that Jesus gives you by faith and you will become worthy to enter God's presence because of what he has done. Receive that as a gift. Give up all efforts of trying to do enough good to outweigh your bad. No matter how much, how much shine you put, on, you put on your life, you'll never be able to wash away those stains. 
Only the blood of Christ can do that. So are you believing on him? Have you trusted in the Savior this morning? If you have any questions about that, please come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to help you understand how you can know Christ and receive his righteousness as a free gift. But lastly, not only does this psalm condemn us and redirect us to Christ, it also points us and guides us. This is our our third and final point this morning. For those who are trusting in Christ, we're not finished with this psalm. This psalm is not just something that makes us say, ooh, I'm I'm really bad. Oh, Jesus is really great. I'm going to trust him. And now I can just close up Psalm 15. I'm done with it. And I can just keep on living my life and slandering people and and robbing and and lying and, and lusting. No. This psalm is a guide to us as Christians. You see, the salvation that God gives us goes further than just being freed from the the legal penalty of sin. When we trust in Jesus, God also begins a process of freeing us from the presence of sin. And theologians have, have called this process sanctification. So there's justification. When I trust in Jesus, I'm justified because he was righteous and because he paid for my sin. Sanctification is what happens afterwards as a result of trusting Jesus our lives begin to reflect him little by little each day. And it's not because we make progress in holiness that we somehow uh, become worthy and become good enough. Listen, this side of heaven, we're always going to have little bits of sin in our lives. Even the saint that's been walking walking with God for 80 years still laments that they are not the person they ought to be. Praise God for our Savior. But Christian, you are called to love God. And God comes into your life, his Holy Spirit, to cleanse you of your sin and to start making you ready for heaven little by little. So this psalm is a guide to us. This this psalm is a description of what, what pleases God. And listen, if we love God, what does Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so we can look at this psalm as, as, man, this is what pleases God. God loves these things and he hates these things. And because I love God, I'm going to try to avoid those things and do these things. This psalm guides us. So let me give us uh, just a few practical instructions as we, as we close out our time. Come to the Lord and, and start by praying this psalm. Pray this psalm. Ask ask the Lord to work these things in your life by his power. Confess to him where you fall short. Confess to others where you need to confess to them. And ask God to help you grow in these areas. When it comes to our words, you know, we we need to ask him to set a watch before our mouths, but also to, to give us more of his love in our hearts. The more the more we come to to be filled with his love, the more that's going to flow out in our speech. So think about how God has loved you. Pray, and you will be filled with his love. But also we can, we can be really practical. I love what Charles Simeon, who was a, a great preacher, resolved to do when it came to gossip and slander. He made these five rules for himself. He, he resolved first to hear as little as possible 
what is to the prejudice of others. So he was going to try to hear as little as possible of you know, ill reports of other people. To believe nothing of the kind until I'm absolutely forced to it. That was his second resolution. To believe no bad reports about other people until I'm absolutely forced to it. Until there's so much evidence that it's undeniable. Thirdly, he he resolved never to drink in the spirit of one who circulates an ill report. There are some people who are just, they kind of have a reputation for always going around and and just talking ill about other people. Like, you might think of so-and-so as a a good person, but let me tell you. Uh, Let me explain. I know some things about them. Charles Simeon resolved never to drink in the spirit of that type of person. And fourth, always to moderate as far as I can the unkindness which is expressed towards others. So this is where he's, he's not just not taking up a reproach against his neighbor, he's, he's going to go over there and try to stop that, that verbal arsonist from burning down that person's reputation. Listen, be firm with people when they start spreading an ill report. If they start telling you, hey, did you know what, let me tell you this about so-and-so, you need to challenge them a little bit, say, Where did you hear that from? How do you know that's true? Confront them on it. Warn them, like, is this a slanderous report that you're spreading? And fifthly, Charles Simeon resolved always to believe that if the other side were heard, a very different account would be given of the matter. 1 Corinthians 13 is probably where he's getting this. Love hopes all things, believes all things. So rather than immediately thinking the worst about another person, you hear something bad about somebody and thinking, I should have known. I can't believe that person. Rather, be hesitant to believe bad things about others. Be hesitant and, and, and think, well, you know, maybe this isn't true. Maybe I don't understand all the circumstances. Maybe I need to investigate a little further. Try to believe the best about others. Another practical thing we can do is when others are not around, single out one of those people and do good gossip about them. You know, like, we might say, uh, well, hey, you know, Josh isn't here right now. Let's, let's all talk about some things we appreciate about Josh. And, and use it as an opportunity to build up another person behind their back. And not just behind their back, to their face. Look for evidences of God's grace in others you know, as, as we come to know the love of Christ for us and his grace for us, we're not going to be so insecure that we feel like we have to constantly be putting others down and building ourselves up. We're going to know that we are accepted because of Christ. And that frees us to not try to look out for ourselves, but to look out for others and seek to build them up. It means we should love the truth, even when the truth hurts. Charles Spurgeon commented that Saints not only desire to love and speak the truth with their lips, but they seek to be true within. They will not lie even in the closet of their hearts, for God is there to listen. They scorn double meanings, evasions, equivocations, white lies, flatteries, and deceptions. Though truths, like roses, have thorns, Good men wear them in their bosoms. This means, this psalm would, would mean that our, that our attitude towards money and wealth would change. 
more and more our security will be found in Christ as we look to him and see all that he is for us. And that should free us to be generous with our wealth and not seek to just get more at every turn. Let me close this out by just summarizing what we've thought about. Who will dwell with God? Who will be in his presence where there is fullness of joy? The one who would dwell with the holy God must be holy. And friend, it's only through Christ that you will ever be holy enough. It's only because of his righteousness that he accomplished in his death for your sins. He is your righteousness, Christian. And you have no hope apart from his righteousness. This psalm condemns our self-righteousness. It redirects us to Christ's righteousness. And from there it guides us in the moral renewal process called sanctification so that we can have the love and, and joy of bringing glory to the one who has loved us so much. And and as Christians, by the power of the Holy Spirit, little by little, day by day, we will be strengthened to start living more like our Savior and resembling him a little more each day, even as he is described in this psalm. Let's pray. O Lord, convict us Convict us, Father, by the power of your Spirit. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. May I be yours forevermore. May that be the cry of everyone who loves Christ in this room. Lord God, help us to hate the sin that hung our Savior to the cross. Help us not to take it lightly, seeing that it was no light burden for him to bear. Oh God, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, for those in this room who don't care what you think, who just think of themselves, I pray that you would show them their selfishness, convict their hearts, break their hard hearts this morning, cause them to see the sin, the vileness that is within and how they can never hope to be with you as they are and help them to come to that fountain filled with blood, to come to Jesus just as they are, admitting that they are sinful wretches that have no hope apart from you, admitting that they, that they have spoken the language of hell that they have acted as children of the devil, but believing your invitation that whoever comes to you will not be cast out and that you 
have the power to cleanse us, that though our sins be as scarlet, they can be whiter than snow through the shed blood of Christ. May that be true of every sinner in this room this morning. All of us, Lord. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.